Okay, welcome back to another episode of What, what the, the Flock. Flock. And this is a sequel to what you saw before with, you know, Matthew Walpert. Yes, and, uh, part two. Part two. Part two. Yeah, and we're very excited. All right. Hi again, Matthew. Hi, good to be here again. Thank you so much. Okay, you know me. I'm going to read the quote of the day. All right. By the way, Matthew, when you were listening to our other episodes, did you hear me not even knowing I was calling it the scripture of the day? I noticed that one. I noticed that. We, we, <laughs> we have that. The so, church lingo, we still, we still get fired up. Yeah, we get fired no, up. It's, uh, it, it, the breaking the loaded language is not Gosh. easy. I mean, it, and, and that's one of the great we things. Got, that, we laugh about it a lot. We use it for humor a lot. That's, for us, it becomes it's like a therapeutic. Becomes, it's so important, but yeah, it, but it, so yes. But if you don't have people who are in the group with you, it's hard to catch yourself. So it's, you you, you need the ex members to be kind of unite and say, "Up, oh, you used it again, <laughs> right?" You know. Yep. So, oh great, so great. Well, fire fire away. Okay, so. quote of the day: Silence becomes cowardice when occasion demands speaking the whole truth and acting accordingly. Mahatma Gandhi. Another one of my favorites. So, Matthew, I'm going to pass the ball back to you because, quick recap, we were talking about how you finally left the group. Like, finally, finally, uh, scales fell from your eyes and you made that final push out of the group. So why don't you kind of pick up where you left off with what was happening? Thanks, Cheryl. So it was, it was, there was... Uh, the leaders, the staff had sort of had sort of laid into the leader, mm-hmm. and the leader sat down, and then he sort of apologised to the to the church, and then we had this we had this um this meeting this big group meeting at the beginning of the year how to make your Bible discussion grow, and Mike Fontenot flew in who was like a big elder, and he um he he, he did a talk that was just like an old school talk. But they had a question and answer session afterwards. Hmm. And basically a few of us, like, like we were angry. This is the point where I started to get really angry uh, because it was like all this stuff had been revealed, but they were then behaving as if we're just going to carry on as normal. So they had a question and answer session at the end. And I basically stood up and I wanted to be the first person to kind of like lay into them i was angry at this point mm-hmm. and uh, and i said like what i basically referenced the stuff that had gone on with mark templer and i said like what why are you still leading us you know what makes you qu- you haven't seen any of this stuff why are you still leading us and then other people got up and said you know read out something from ezekiel about the shepherds looking after the sheep and, a, and somebody else got up and said about how they felt like a child in the in, in the way they were, their dating life was controlled. And then it kind of culminated in this, this one brother kind of like, this kind of like quite tall, large brother storming down the aisle saying, there's been spiritual abuse here. There's been spiritual abuse. So it was all kind of kicking off. Mm-hmm. The leaders were trying to manage it. So they were like, they knew at this point they couldn't put the, chi- the genie back in the bottle, in London anyway. So they right. were then trying to manage it. So they had something. They, they said, okay, let's get together. Let's get non-staff people. Let's get two representatives from each region. And let's get some of the staff. Let's get together and have a London council. And we'll get together. And we'll try and work it out. And I managed to get voted on 
to the London Council as one of the representatives. And that same evening, one of the brothers came to me. And I, don't, I didn't mention this before. When I challenged Mark Templer like seven years previous, and I wanted to start my own church, the brother that I wanted to start the church with, with was um, a brother from Birmingham in the UK who used to be a bodybuilder. He's an incredible guy, really talented guy. And we both had issues with the church. And he subsequently, he'd been, you know, he'd struggled with, with sex, wanting sex. And so he got disfellowshipped. He well, wait, let, fought- let's rephrase that. He struggled with being human. <laughs> Exactly. And having well, he flesh, he wasn't struggling, struggling with sex. sex life, we know? all would I mean, like to have sex. sex. <laughs> okay, so he struggled with being human, and that wasn't allowed. Go ahead. Okay, Which is, you know, go and multiply. You know, so, <laughs> so he disfellowshipped. He because he believed like me, it was the church. He'd come back. He'd been disfellowshipped. He'd come back. Anyway, I called him and said, "Look, it's all changing. Things are changing. You know, like Mark Templar's resigned. Like this is happening. Things are going to change." <laughs> No, I left it. I hadn't managed to get hold of him. That that same meeting where I was, where I got voted on to the book that this kind of London Council group. My brother came and told me that he killed himself. That this brother from Birmingham had, had hung uh, himself. The bodybuilder guy. Oh, yeah, and uh, I, I don't. Know, I, I want to say his name, but I, I don't. I haven't talked to his family, so I don't feel like it's no, right to say his yeah, name. No, yeah, you don't need to. That's fine. Great yeah. guy, but at that moment. I mean, it was, and again, I feel bad about this because it was, it, it felt to me like God, God was saying, take your gloves off. You know, this is bad. Yeah. This is bad. This is and, how bad it really is. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it really is bad. And and from that point on, there was this sort of white, hot anger in me. So mm. I got onto the London Council and then I, I challenged the elder that he wasn't really an elder, but I wasn't allowed to challenge him because... <laughs> had to bring an accusation and then a whole lot of stuff happened. But at that meeting, and this will have reference for people who've been in the ICOC, Henry Crete happened to be in London at that time, mm. who was a well-known leader. Um, and he saw all this going on and he'd had issues for a long time and it inspired him to write all these issues down. And he wrote a paper called Honest to God, which mm. is basically him laying out all the issues of legalism and control and, financial misappropriation or financial issues, greed, Within power, the church, yes. The, for the whole of the ICOC. And Correct. he gave me a copy, and then he also emailed me a copy. He said it, it, it's, the letter began an open letter to the teachers, leaders, and evangelists. So I read open letter. To be honest, at that point, I didn't really care. I started sending it out to everybody <laughs> I knew. I hadn't even really read it properly because, to me, I had a, at that point, I was a bit... I was pissed off with all the leaders, mm-hmm. even if they were on my side. So, so no one had seen this letter yet. So, so preface only that the London yeah. Council only, and none of yeah. them had sent it out. Right. So I sent it out. It was the early days of email. I sent it out, and it started to spread. It went viral within the ICOC. So he starts getting calls saying, "What? What is this letter?" And he was very well respected. Mm-hmm. Quite hard to dismiss him, and it also it hit them. They couldn't. They couldn't control the. Uh, the flow of information. It was brilliant. It was <laughs> I'm so happy it happened. Right. And basically, he was annoyed at me. Henry was cross, but then he saw it was God's, he felt like this is God's will. So he gave me, in fact, a finished draft to kind of finally send out. And that started to have an impact, especially kind of, I think, in the American churches and 
I'd say especially, especially in Los Angeles. Yeah. Yeah. So, it, it, and then they started having open forums. Mm-hmm. And, it, and so that was spreading. And so the church was kind of an uproar, you know. And in London, for me, it became more and more obvious, especially the leaders who didn't want to hear it. It just became, it was like scales falling from my eyes. It was like, oh my gosh, these guys are not godly men. They are holding on to power. Mm. They are holding on to their uh to their own insecurities, they're Control. holding on to their financial position. Mm-hmm. This is nothing to do with God. Mm-hmm. This is totally with a power hierarchical dynamic going on here. And it became really obvious. And and also I started to see, oh my gosh, we have been because we were the church that were going and telling all the other churches that they were lost. We were the Pharisees, mm-hmm. you know, as, as portrayed in the Bible. I don't want to diss the Pharisees, but as, <laughs> certainly as portrayed in the New Testament. That, that like, you know, the ones who were like, we are the righteous ones. You are all lost. We are the right. And that's, <laughs> we, were the fa- we were the people who Jesus was most angry with. Right. It's the, so true. Like most pissed off with. That's who we were. And that's who I was. Mm. You know, I, I was never a big time leader, but I would, I would evangelize. I would tell people on the street they were lost. Mm-hmm. I would get out trying to prove to them they were lost. So that was that was the moment when I realized, oh my, you know, at that point I thought, is this a church of Satan? Is this like, you know, it, it kind of got that bad. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. As you dug in more, as people started to open up about what had happened, and you started to really read about all the stories that you'd you close your eyes to on the internet, it was like a can of worms that just went deeper and deeper mm-hmm. and deeper. Wow. Well, we weren't allowed to look at that stuff. Remember, it was spiritual pornography. Spiritual pornography. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, hearing you two talk about this, it it obviously it resonates with me with my group. It, it's it's what I refer to as the black and white thinking, right? Mm-hmm. It's uh, at at any moment you can make a right or wrong decision, or at any any statements definitively the truth or a lie. And you know, I've learned in life that uh, we really live in shades of gray. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, it, being human. Well, again, <laughs> it, if you if you if you fall into that way of thinking that uh, any moment there can be a right or wrong decision, I mean, who decides that? You know, and mm-hmm. and and I've really looked at it from the point of view that we're faced with choices constantly, and uh, you're going to make a choice, and it, it may be a choice not to do anything, but you know whether it's. What we do or what we don't do, what we say or what we don't say, there's always going to be consequences. There'll be ramifications, and whatever <clears throat> happens is a is a potential teaching moment. So, ultimately, can you really categorize it as right or wrong, or or you know good or bad? Ultimately, we're just kind of a a, a work in progress, doing the best mm-hmm. we can. And I feel like that's the place you end up trying to make peace with because this very dualistic right or wrong black and white thinking really takes us down a path of control and suffering Mm -hmm. but again we were following the bible of course and there's the scriptures i'm I'm actually hearing them responding to you right now which is a little twisted but i'm going to tell you what they would say to that is but in the bible it says that you're allowed to judge justly and if we are following the scriptures then we're allowed to judge you. And it is black and white. Look, black and white, black words on white paper. This is the word of God. Here's how you must live. And that well, was held over our heads. No, I get that. But I think that's where the transition comes to, you know, of, 
of like you know Matthew's describing of where you start to rethink everything and start to come up with your own point of view, one that sure it might have been influenced by scripture or a book or what experience, but ultimately coming to find your own way, right? Right. You know, so I love that. So continue on, Matthew. Sorry to interrupt. Well, but it, it, just, just, just so I don't forget, because it's interesting, that whole thing, the Bible. I was even watching today uh, uh, Tim Kernan, who now is in Kitchen. Oh, uh, yeah. I've seen stuff on Facebook. But I, the, one of the scriptures we used to use to try and convert people was, if you hold to my teachings, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Very famous. Yeah. I used to, for the 15 years I was in that ICSC, I was like, what is this being set free? Because I do not feel <laughs> I feel free. like I'm yeah. in a very small cage. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah. And, and it really, for me, like you can quote all the scriptures you want, but if you're not free mm. and the other one is love, for me, that was the key. In 2003, what I saw was you can call this love mm. discipleship telling people what to do. We love people because we're trying to get them to stop from going to hell. We love people because we're trying to stop you sinning. We love people because we think you should be dating this person. (laughs) (laughs) Right? We're protecting you. You don't know what's good for you. (laughs) But, But real love, you know, real love is when you really, my family showed me real love. Mm. When I left the church, I, I, you know, I, I listened to, I gave all my money. Ultimately, I gave all my money to the church. I wasn't, I didn't make as much money as Hoyt. It's no different. I mean, as long as you give everything you have, it's, everything the, same, is it's, everything. The, same, it's the same dynamic. Oh, yeah. yeah. In one go, but over, and then eventually I sold this house I had and I gave that. I kept a little bit back and I got a job. And, you know, so... I, I left the church with nothing, really, mm-hmm. you know, and my family really supported me. Old friends were really there for me. And that's love. Yeah. You know, they really, yeah. they didn't care about what they could get from me yeah. or what I could do for them or some doctrine where if I do this thing, that's, they just love me because they love me. Right. And so for me, those two things, it doesn't matter what verses, you, if there isn't freedom and there isn't love, it's bullshit. It's uh, no, I, right. you're, you're, you're preaching to the choir, you know? Uh, so, so did, was yeah. your actual exit, was it kind of a slow fade out or was it a, an abrupt? Uh, we, so basically it was all kicking off. Right. I, I thought for a while I could stay and help to change things. And I remember getting with a group of brothers who were like kind of similar, like-minded to me, but they were talking about keeping guard, the gospel guard, the gospel is what we called the, the study in the UK, the series of studies. And for me, it was like, oh my gosh, my questions go so much deeper than I want to. Re- I want to go right to the foundation. I want to like rip up the foundation and right. see anything even there. You know, do I even still believe in God? Who is God? Who is Jesus? Like, let me like. This is definitely not. This is definitely not right. Mm-hmm. So Good stuff. My yeah. wife. My wife had left like a couple of weeks before she, and she'd been in for longer than me. She'd been in for seventeen years. Yeah, and she. A meeting where she just saw again for her it was just seeing yeah big for her but it was like seeing the leader kind of who they were people she really cares still kept we the thing is i still love everybody including kit mckean i love them all you know yeah i just don't want to be under their yoke of slavery right. <laughs> so sure. we left left and we got married like a, a month later so wow you know about 300 people because obviously from the church some of them who'd left some of them hadn't left uh, some of them who I was still fighting with. Uh, and then we had this wedding. And then it was a moment. I remember sitting on my couch thinking, I could keep fighting the church, 
bit. It didn't feel, it felt just like a vendetta at that point. Mm. It felt mm-hmm. uh, feel like, at a certain point for me, it felt like God's spirit was kind of moving. Mm-hmm. Hacking the church, I felt like Jesus turning over the tables and the, but then I just, when I was sitting on that couch, I just felt like, oh, this is, I feel like it's now going to be a vendetta if I keep going. So I, I did stay on the forums and sort of stay on stuff online, but I kind of, I had to kind of let it go because right. also I'm not going to change. They want to live. They believe Christianity is this way. They're not. Yeah, I could shout at them all day long. <laughs> yeah, they're not going to. Right. No, are, I, 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 I love hearing that. I love hearing that, Matthew, because I think it's, it's a real um, trap on some level to get stuck into, I now have to attack and yeah. bring down my oppressors. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and it's in essence kind of taking everything they taught you and addressing it back at them in some way. Yeah. And, and it feels initially satisfying, but to, for you to have the awakening on some level of saying, um, listen, what's more important for, is for me to live my life, you know? Yeah. And, and, yeah. and uh, in many ways, I mean, I certainly know for me, I was fortunate in the sense that my group was small, so I could actually take them on and feel like I, I got somewhere to helping dissolve it. But that was a very unique situation. Usually, these groups are much larger, and and you know, and and the most important part of the recovery process, my my opinion, is not taking down the group. It's just reclaiming yourself and your life and your mm-hmm. own values. And you know, when, you yeah. know, as you're describing, when that critical thinking kicks back in. You're just like motherfucker, you know. It's like, <laughs> and that's a lot of stuff to process, and that work is so much more important than what, you know worrying about what the fucking group is doing because that's that or thinking, yeah. And yeah. so, so good for you. I re- I'm so I, I compliment you because a lot of people really fall into that, and it can become a trap, and and it and it's on some level um, an avoidance of dealing with the more important issue of, of just being accountable on some level for how this all happened rather than just demonizing that you you know the the group because like you said at the end of the day you know most of these people were are very sincere and and you and you still love them and you know their intentions probably for the most part were good and um and that they that you all got kind of stuck in this quagmire you know mhm yeah. totally well and yeah. i was i was thinking about how we um were mentioning the bible and different scriptures that they would hang on to to really mobilize and control and threaten us. You know, a lot of those scriptures about black and white, mm-hmm. about, but it is black and white. You know, you are your brother's keeper. We can control you. We can do X, Y, and Z. But the main scripture that was always missed was the one that talks about you can have this, you can do this, you can do that. But if you have not love, you have nothing. Mm-hmm. And we never really camped out on that scripture. Did you notice that, Matthew? It was never like, well, you can have all these great things and be this supposedly sold out, committed, strong disciple of Jesus. But if you have not love, you have nothing. And they missed the love part. They missed the grace part. They missed the mercy part. It was all... The only things that were emphasized were how to, again, mobilize and control us and keep us in line. Mm-hmm. And to be fair, Michelle, they they thought mm-hmm. in their minds, they, and I probably thought this. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I probably, I'm sure I did think this. If you do these things, that is love. Correct. You know I mean? That's you, exactly what they thought. It was called tough yeah, love. 
that is not love. If you're listening, right. that is not love. <laughs> because because I love you, I'm going to do these harsh things yeah. to you. That's yeah. how that scripture was interpreted. Yeah. So everything had a double-edged sword, but everything had a hard edge to it. Mm-hmm. You know, the the grace part, like I, re- I remember going into one leaders meeting, and we'll talk about that on another episode with some other ICOC members, but the leaders meetings, I'd have almost panic attacks before going into because you'd have to stand up, report your numbers, and you'd be, you know, everything was, like we said, rated. Mm -hmm. So even how many people we had at our church service had a rating and you would go into the meeting and your charts had columns that said good, great, or awesome. And if you only or bad, bad, good, great, awesome. So everything was charted. So if you only had a certain percentage of visitors at your church service, you'd be mm. have bad or good. But then all the, mm. the great and awesome people, the accolades, everyone would clap, you know, and it, it would be a great thing. So I went into one of the meetings thinking, I'm going to share about this great quiet time I had because it moved me and it was on grace. But we didn't have that many visitors that Sunday. So I remember sharing about my great quiet time from the Bible and and everyone, I, I almost got booed, but it was just like, oh, sister, trying to cover up your awful performance on Sunday with sharing about scriptures on grace. Sister, we see you so clearly. And I'm like, oh, my God, like you, you couldn't even share good things if you weren't performing. Because then it no, looked like you were trying. Is this resonating with you, Matthew? What I'm saying? I was. I was always. I totally. It's true. I mean, you know, that is the way it was. It wasn't. Yeah. Grace was almost an excuse, or you a know, smoke screen. Were, a smoke screen about, for, for not cranking stats is what they call right. cranking. Well, I, the, I think the phrase was I was using grace as a smoke screen to not talk yeah. about my bad stats that week. And I really wasn't. I just had this moving quiet time because I was trying to calm my anxiety before going into this very cutthroat meeting in Los Angeles. And by the way, do you, wait, do you remember the China Club off of Sunset? Sure, sure. Well, a member of our church cult bought the China Club and then for the church. So we had all these church events there. We had all of our uh, monthly meetings there for the leaders of Los Angeles or when people flew in, they'd be highlighted. But um, and it was ironically changed to the name of the Upside Down Club mm. because Peter was crucified upside down on a cross. So that's where they get the name. They actually have a whole play called the Upside Down. Um, so yeah, so it was the Upside Down Club where we had our meetings. And I remember every time I had to go into the Upside Down Club, I'd literally have a physical response, like, what's going to happen to me today? You know, just really insane, you know, awful things happened at these meetings. But I don't even know how I got on that tangent. How did, yeah, I, get, yeah. how did I do that? No, really? no, Matthew, I'd love to get back to, you know, so you're out of this now. Yeah. And you're starting to move forward. And, and what were the challenges you were facing? Well, I mean, generally, I am, you know, I have... I am prone towards depression and mm. I'm, I'm bipolar. I'm bipolar. I've been diagnosed bipolar, whether I accept mm. that diagnosis or not is another issue. Yeah. So, um, but I definitely was depressed, you know, afterwards I was like, you know, what am I going to do with my life? Like, is God real? Mm. What am I doing for the last 15 years? 
And then, in fact, it was my wife who said, uh, we came back from a holiday uh, and she said, you should do stand-up. <laughs> and I'd always wanted to do stand-up comedy. Right. Uh, my hero as a child, when I was about 13, 14, was Lenny Bruce, mm. you know, New York comedian. Oh, sure. Uh, yeah. He was like my hero. I had a poster on my wall and, you know, I loved him. And um, But I'd always been too scared. So anyway, we I, I did a few gigs and I did a I did a sort of short course and I started doing it and I was okay at it. I never, you know, I, I managed. The good thing about it was that it was it was full engagement with the world. You know, we'd been out of we'd been sort of like out of the world for like fifteen years. I, I had been, and it was like you know I was meeting people, uh, you know, who I who I wouldn't have met. Com- quite often comics are quite depressives anyway and <laughs> the comics are a little bit you know crazy conflicted i like the word conflicted there was quite a lot of kindred yeah. spirits i was meeting there and also just doing the gig the adrenaline of like going up there and doing it and then you have a good gig or you die you die on your ass or you, you know however you do so it was like it was like a, um it got me engaged you know it got me engaged with something other than god and the bible and the church and it, mm. it was like you couldn't really do stand up like i was working i was teaching uh, small children and i was also doing stand up like three four five times a week driving to like you know you know exeter like three hour drive there three hour drive back to do a gig that i wouldn't get paid for right. you know to do a 10 minute spot you know a bit in a bigger gig and then eventually i started I got in with a particular club and I became kind of known as an MC, you know, the guy that brings on the acts. Right. Right. And I was getting paid for doing that. And then it became like my full-time job. I gave up the teaching and I was doing that. And I used to talk about, you know, being in a, in a cult and, and giving away the money. I do jokes. My mother's gay. I used to talk jokes about my mum being gay. My wife is black. I talk jokes about my wife being black. <laughs> you know, that I used to, my, my comedy was very confessional. Mm-hmm. I'd even talk about stuff. I won't say it now, but I would. There would be stuff I wouldn't tell my doctor that I would say on stage because they they would never quite know whether I was telling the truth or not. <laughs> so there was stuff I felt comfortable saying on stage I hadn't told my doctor yet. Um, so it was very therapeutic and great. Mm. And, and at the same time, I was still always at the back of my mind trying to work out what what have I been through? Who is God? Mm. And I think I still had a lot of those. ICOC mindsets towards God, like even to, you know, even till quite recently, really, even maybe till now, or that thing of like, you know, oh, you've got to, you know, get with God in the morning. You've got to spend, if you don't, when I was in the church, if you didn't spend time with God in the morning, that your day was over, that you could write off your day. Your day didn't exist because you'd blown it. Your quiet time. Having, you'd be asked yeah, about, that's called a quiet time. Okay. Yeah, that was loaded language. Mm-hmm. That, that kind of pressure of like, you know, and that's, you know, like God is expecting me to, you know, not, and that's taken a long time to really, I have a very different view of God now. You know, God mm-hmm. is my friend. I love God. God loves me. I, I, you know, like we have a friendship. It's We still fight. I still get angry at God. I still sometimes fear God, but essentially it's a, it's a love affair and it's a friendship, but it has taken another you know, uh, eight, 18 years or whatever since I left the church. Right. Get there. And it's, so it's not necessarily, and I don't, I don't even know if I'm there or what will happen tomorrow or how I feel, you know, but it does, it is, 
that programming, that way of looking at God, and the, it was went very deep. And, and all those scriptures, I know people who we have a group. I, I meet with a group of people who are ex-members. Some are still members. They tend to be members who are a bit more open-minded. And we we get together and we chat about things. And and I know different people struggle with that still that ICOC mindset, that mindset is, it goes very deep because, sure, you know, you can put it, you can pin it to the Bible, but it is pinning it to a very particular angle on the Bible, you know, mm-hmm. a very particular way of looking at the Bible. Well, the, so, those, those neural yeah. pathways are there yeah. in the brain yeah. and you literally have to beat down new pathways in your brain and re- yeah. replace them and kind of edge out the ICOC, you know, way of thinking. Totally. Now, did you uh, yeah. did you do any kind of additional kind of self education that helped you along that path, or you know, obviously you said you had conversations with some of the ex members, and I'm sure that was very cathartic. But like, what were, what were kind of the, some of the tools that you? I mean, used? I did have I had therapy a couple of times. Mm-hmm. I mean, I got, <laughs> I got sectioned again. <laughs> I'm sorry. What, what's sec- uh, what's sectioned? Committed. I got, uh, committed. Oh, okay. I committed in 2012. Okay. And I started smoking weed again. And so I, you know, that was probably in my education. So, was, <laughs> and then after that, I had some therapy that they provided. Mm. And then again, therapy after that. And the therapy was good because uh, 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 I'm quite harsh on myself. It was, it was, it was a compassionate, it talks a lot about having compassion on yourself. Mm-hmm. In terms of the kind of doctrinal stuff, mm-hmm. that was just me thinking and talking. Right. Yeah, a lot of that is just me. I know for different, I know a lot of people, you know, reading books and stuff outside of the ICOC mindset. Yeah. Uh, you know, a much more grace filled, mm-hmm. especially if you're kind of staying in the Christian. One of my best friends is like now Buddhist. Another one's a shaman. You know, other people have gone into other spiritual. Some are very much in the Christian, you know, tradition. Others are now agnostic or atheist. But, um, I, don't, I think everyone has to go on their own journey. I think, the, but the thing I think everyone has to go on—it is their journey. Yes, it's, you know, it's their journey. Yeah, it's not someone else telling you the journey to go on. It's you. Read books, think, pray, go on retreats, go to Thailand and join a Buddhist monastery. I wouldn't encourage you to go into another cult, but <laughs> you know, it's, it's owning. This is your life. And this is, if there is a God, it's your relationship with God. It's no relationship with God. Well, and I I think it's important to um, underscore what you just said. There there is no exact blueprint for trauma recovery. Like everyone's going to, I mean, I think there's some basic tenets of things to kind of look out for and watch out for and things even my own therapist has walked me through. Um, But there is no blanket blueprint on how to recover, Mm. you know. Um, so did, I, I'm curious, did you, uh, how was, uh, your, you said your family was pivotal in the way that they, uh, they, you know, offered you a ton of support and love. Did you, did you have, um, conversations with them about this? I mean, were they, I know like my family st- still sometimes looks at me like, so what happened again? <laughs> um, I mean, was that was that part of the process? It didn't, it didn't really. My family are all pretty much atheists, so for them, the whole—I mean, that's not totally. I don't want to. If they're listening, I'm. You know, you might. They're all intents and purposes are either agnostic or atheist. Right. Like I said, my father was so for them. 
it was, you know, for them, partly for them, I was in such a mess before I joined the church that even though they recognize that they probably do recognize the church was a cult, I can't speak for them. It kept me from their point of view. I was still alive mm-hmm. because I was in the mess before and I can't deny that. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of in prison. I was sort of safe in prison. So <laughs> I think when I came out, uh, I think they just wanted me to be okay. Yeah. And whether in, in the church or out of the church, I don't think they really cared. They just wanted me to be safe. Right. Right. You have to speak to them. I think they look at it as like, I know I've talked to one of my sisters and said it was like you were like it was like you were in prison. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, no, but it was. They never tried to persuade me to leave. They never tried to persuade me to go back. But you know, they supported me financially. They were, you know, just totally there for me. Mm-hmm. You know, so I. They were very non-judgmental about it. That's amazing. So Matthew, I have a few questions about. Yeah. Um, something that I wanted to, to talk about here. Do you feel like, because you and I discussed earlier on different people that you've tried to go back and talk to, either, mm-hmm. you know, within the, that are still in the group um, or even some that have left, do you feel like in talking to some of your friends that are still in the group, do you feel like they can hear you now or do you feel like um, they're willing to listen? I haven't had that experience. I've had a really horrible experience personally with people that are still in the group. So I just finally had to stop talking to everybody. But what's your experience been there? So I think it, because London sort of started, it, uh, so I, there are some people I I haven't talked to. Mm-hmm. There's some people who are pissed off with me. In fact, who've left the church and are still pissed off with me mm-hmm. for what happened in 2003 because I did help to kind of drive a stake and I was quite angry. You mean with the angry. Henry Crete letter? Yeah, releasing that was, you know, I mean, about a third of the church left, which I'm very happy you, about. You were pretty much the uh, underground whistleblower there, Matthew. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. it was just coincidence I happened to send it out, but I'm very grateful that I did. Mm-hmm. But so London's a bit different. So the people I talk to are still in, are very much, they're quite open. They're, they're not, <clears throat> I would say they, they a lot of them, see through a lot of the stuff and that, that there's there's not a lot of discipling in, in certain parts of london there's no discipling there's no control there's a group called thames valley that is really that there is no control you know mm-hmm. but i think they still have the basic doctrinal things about repentance and baptism but they don't right. control people and tell people how to live their lives they don't control their dating it's more like a, it's more like a normal church i think if you go into other parts of london it is more like old school Mm-hmm. And within that, there's, there's people who just do whatever they want anyway. So there are places, I know Manchester recently, somebody came back in and sort of like kicked out the people who weren't willing to go along with discipling. This is as I understand it. Mm-hmm. So it's a mixed picture in, in, in the UK. I imagine in LA, it's a bit more homogenous and a bit more, um, they're still full on into the mindset. I don't know if that's mm-hmm. true, Shell. Well, yeah. And as we kind of wind down here and wrap it up, what I want to talk about, what I've actually been really excited to talk about with you and Hoyt, is the the concept of spiritual gaslighting. Mm -hmm. So here's a short short little definition of spiritual gaslighting. Spiritual gaslighting is the process of trying to condition you to believe the problem isn't the abuse itself, 
but instead your reactions to their abuse, calling it crazy, sinful, or bitter. And the main thing I've seen in my own life and a lot of my friends' lives that have left the ICOC is this concept of spiritual gaslighting, whether it's the condescending, oh, we'll pray for you, you know, approach, or jumping up and down saying, oh, but our, our church has changed. We're not bad anymore. We're not that bad <laughs> anymore. And then listing out all the, all the ways that they have changed, but never, ever acknowledging the abuse, what did happen, how it has affected people, how it has destroyed lives. I know people that have committed suicide, the destruction that it caused in some people's lives. And the best way for me to describe that is to use an analogy. And um, you think about the analogy of, you know, a child that grows up in an abusive home with whether it's verbal abuse, uh, physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, doesn't matter. It's abuse, you know, during formative years. The child deals with this abuse, finally gets old enough or evolves or strong enough to confront the abuser, whatever that abuse was, whether it's the parents, the uncle, the teacher, the neighbor, and then the the entity that was doing the abusing says, well, that didn't happen, or it wasn't that bad, or you're remembering it wrong, or maybe even worse, well, I've changed. But again, never acknowledging, never apologizing, and never just saying, yeah, that happened, or I need help, or whatever the response is. And that's the experience I've had. I, I've had not one really even close to apology. I've had the the shunning, the, well, that didn't happen, and really some horrible things that I confronted one of the elders on that he had done to me. It was really, I'll get into it another time, but just really, really damaged me. Um, some very personal things he said and did and required of me. And he was like, well, I, I never would have done that. And I'm like, <laughs> he clearly knew he did, but wouldn't even acknowledge that it happened. I went, which was, and this again, there's no blueprint for healing. Part of my process of the aftermath was acknowledging and confronting people, not in a mean way, but just confronting what happened, um, thinking I'm going to get some sort of apology. I've now come to learn that's never going to happen, which has been somewhat therapeutic in itself to embrace that. But that sort of spiritual gaslighting where they are now, and what's happened to me, assessing and judging and lying about me and making my confrontation of them look like the problem. Like the problem is that I'm confronting them, right? And what I just read, spiritual gaslighting is a process of trying to condition you to believe the problem isn't the abuse itself, but instead your reactions to their abuse calling it crazy, sinful, or bitter. So what the individuals, which is now probably 73 people I've either confronted or emailed over the last, what, 12 years, all these people, all of them, have either, said, either been silent or 
called me something or shunned me or talked behind my back, or I hear these lies, really grandiose lies that come back to me later about things me or my family are doing, which aren't even in the ballpark of truth, utter fabrications, laughable things. And so part of my process has been my aftermath has been, A, I had to stop looking for an apology. I had to stop confronting people and just accept that this is just who they are and what they believe. And they're allowed to be that way. I can't change them. So it was very healing for me to finally stop trying. And the reason I'm bringing all this up right now and and going into it in so much details is because even as of last week, when people from the ICOC cult were either complaining about our podcast or calling some of our guests or the continued silence and shunning and all these different things that were happening, um, I at one point even had to get a lawyer because I thought, what are these people going to do? So it's been pretty... Again, I'm I'm coming full circle here because it's been so many years, but it was the final nail in the coffin for me, so to speak, of nailing this thing shut. Like, I am never going to get an apology. I am never going to be heard by them. I'm never going to receive any sort of acknowledgement or, oh, that, that was pretty bad. I mean, my ex is still in the group. He's still doing this kind of stuff. So I think it was in a really weird way, the silence and the shunning was what I needed. I just needed to see that finally that I can't I can't look at that trauma and normalize it in any way. I have to go, that was really horrible what they did and some of them are still doing and go, Dear God, that's okay. It's it's okay. That's their path. I'm on my path. And I think that's one of the things I'm probably most grateful about with even this podcast is that I wasn't really done healing. And so I'm so grateful for people like you, Matthew. Nixie that came on has had a great experience just finally talking about things. And that's what we wanted to do you know, was have these conversations to give people that that opportunity, that outlet to kind of just, even if it's in a messy way, feel their way through it and go, Jesus, that was horrible. Yes, there's a silver li- lining. Yes, you can cherry pick, but God damn it, that was disgusting. It was awful. Okay, now I can move on. You know, and that's why I'm even loving a lot of the comments and feedback we're getting because this is why we wanted to do it. We are normalizing trauma recovery. We're not normalizing the trauma. We're normalizing the recovery process. So I know I just went on a tirade, but I had to share that because it's... Could I just just say something on the back of that? So I just wanted to say because of the gaslighting. So I'm sharing about... Oh, I'm in touch with people here and there, but totally what you're saying is a hundred percent true and resonates. And I know it's true because I've experienced it and I've seen other people experiencing it. And it's only because, uh, uh, you know, and I, you know, the pain is still, I still get pain 
mm-hmm. from different ways that have happened, you know. And I totally recognise what you're saying. So it's only because London, and there's certain people in London I know I couldn't talk to. It's like, and there's, you know, people who think I'm the devil. Mm-hmm. I got when I when everything was kicking off in 2003. One sister told me she wanted to knee me in the balls. Another <laughs> sister told me I was the devil. You know, another sister accused me of all that. You know, I was, and these were just ordinary members. This wasn't even, the leadership was trying to shut me down. The difference was in London at that point, it had kind of got to a point they couldn't shut it down. Mm. And some leaders actually went up on stage and said, yeah, they read out the Henry Creek letter and said, I've done all of this. Mm. And literally, they took off their religious robes and they literally stood there naked. And like, yeah, not all of them did that, unfortunately. A lot of them wanted to hold on. But what you're saying, I totally recognise, and it, and it's really hard. I, you know, it's really hard because it's incredibly painful when you're faced with that wall of like, you know, you know, of li- it's basically they're, they're lying. Essentially, they're lying mm-hmm. because you know, it's not true. They have abused you. They they have done things for false motives. They have lied. It's like, and and I would say the ICOC. The only time I would accept the ICOC has truly changed is if every time they got up to do a sermon, mm. the first thing they would say would be, yeah, we abuse, we spent years abusing people. We spent years mm. controlling people. They would be like the Apostle Paul talking about his pharisaical past. The Apostle Paul would, every opportunity, say, I used to persecute Christians. I used to kill Christians. Mm. The ICOC had really changed deeply. That would be the first thing that would come out of their mouths when they do a sermon. We used to be a group that told people who they could marry. We used to be a group that, you know, controlled, like, you know, what you could do, how you spent your money, where you went to. We used to tell people where they could live, where they couldn't live. That would be, in ICOC terms, repentance. Right. So what, right. you know, that would be, it would be like, they would talk about it because they, they like, the way I talk about it, like, I was a Pharisee. Mm. Like, I people they would you know it would be there'd be no shame in it anymore because you like this is what i was doing you know i'm not trying to pretend and the problem with the icoc is they're still to to one level whether it's like on a small level they're not owning their past they're not owning it well and yes and you just said it because if you've really changed do you have to keep trying to convince people you've changed Exactly. While still repeating some of those same behaviors. Why exactly. out of 73 emails did not one person apologize to me? Because you haven't changed, ICOC. You don't have to yeah. jump up and down and say, we've changed, and defend yourself and call some of my guests and say, well, we've changed. Why are you talking about us? Here it is. If you've changed, you would love this podcast. Exactly. They'd be on this podcast sharing what they did. Right. Yeah, I, there I, it I, is. I did this, I did that, I did this, I did that. Right. Because it was no power anymore. Right. It only holds power because they're trying to deny it. If it, it was truly about Jesus and the Bible and all those scriptures that you hit us with, you would love the podcast. You'd be like, this is so helpful to help us see how to repent Absolutely. and be humble. But you haven't changed. Some of them have. I get it. But collectively... As a group, they have not. So that's how I, that's all I have to say about that. Matthew. In London, still, I know there's people still fighting battles with the leaders. You know, there's people I'm in contact with who are still trying. And then recently, part of the London church, the East separated, and there's. And I think eventually the chickens will come. You, you can't. 
it's like it's like a totalitarian regime. You can't. The truth will out. I do yeah. believe, but obviously yeah. you can't. You don't know how long that's going to be, and you we have to let go. Yes, because we waiting for them to wake up. But when they do wake up, we'll be there to love them. You know. Right. Yeah, Love it. I mean, and, and in many ways, all you're experiencing on some level is other versions of yourself when you were in the group, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's uh, that's unsettling. But yeah, um, be grateful you're on this side, not that side. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, so yeah. Not true, huh? Because yeah. it is like people try to talk to me before I left. And I couldn't hear it. Yeah, right. Exactly. So that that's where at least the empathy comes in. I mean, obviously, people who are enacting abuse. You know, that's another category. But um, uh, most of these people are just literally brainwashed, still indoctrinated. Right. And like like yeah. you're saying, uh, uh, you know, Matthew, it's like you have virtual earmuff, earmuffs on. You can't hear yeah. what the other person's saying. Right. But uh, I sat in those same shoes and my family and friends tried for years and uh, just wasn't ready. Right. Yeah. And I, and I get that. Again, everyone's on their own path and their own part of the process and their own journey and there is just such a, a freedom in embracing that yeah yeah it was one other thing i wanted to say show that mm-hmm. i i believe this is challenging but but i still there were times when you know the temptation was to either hate them or to stop caring about them because it hurts mm-hmm. hurt. there's one person in particular who i really love really was close to but we had such a you know, and it's slightly it's better now, but I ha- I think it's okay to continue to love them and to feel the hurt, like as in not to allow them to abuse you, not to allow them to do anything, but to feel the hurt of the fact that you can't, they're not listening. I think it's okay to feel that hurt, you know. Right. You don't well, and- it's, it's okay because the reason you're hurting is because you want to reach out, you want to connect with them and you can't. And you want well- yeah, and, no. and and we'll close out after I say this, but there's also the part that I'm learning about myself there is that, and another thing my therapist helped me see, <laughs> is that there was a part of me that wanted them to acknowledge me or apologize or what have apologized because it was like my last almost subconscious effort to see something in them that would make me feel better about myself that I was in that group. Like, if yeah. I can see some humanity in them, then I'll know that I really wasn't that crazy to be in the group. But I'm at least the people I'm reaching out to, again, I had to stop looking for any sort of um, clue or answer from their response and go, yeah. I'm just not going to get it. So yeah. I think I'm in a good, almost neutral place right now where it's not, I don't feel angry. I think sometimes yeah. I sound angry because I'm very passionate about how I feel, but I don't feel angry. I think I feel mm. a good sense of peace that I'm. I need to let them live their life. I live my life, and that's all I can yeah. do. You know, so it feels very neutral right now with where I'm at. Yeah, yeah. Which so is- I, I want. I'd like to apologize to you for everything that you've gone through. As an ex-member of the ICOC, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, I hear that, but obviously you don't need to apologize. No, but, no. I, I hear you. Well, as, as, as we say, live to tell the tale. And uh, yeah. Matthew, thank you yes. so much. 
Thank for, you guys, uh, man. I appreciate yeah. what you're doing. And I appreciate yeah. both of you so much. Joining us in this uh, fight to just kind of bring awareness and uh, and make it cool to talk about your cultic experience. <laughs> uh, because uh, there's there's no shame in it. There's actually incredible empowerment by owning our stories. Mm-hmm. And there's a... Uh, there's a whole community of us that uh, really benefit from hearing each other's tales and realizing we're not the only one, you know, out there. So thank you. And uh, we hope to have you back again sometime. Well, and you know, I'm, I'm going to end us out with the quote of the day. Silence becomes cowardice when occasion demands speaking the whole truth and acting accordingly. Mahatma Gandhi. So, Matthew, on that note, thank you so much for your courage and all that you did and really all that you've done with um, being such a a perfect whistleblower when it was needed and sending that letter out, which I believe truly saved lives and families just by hearing the the truth publicly. So Mm -hmm. I thank you for being really a hero to me and everything that you did. Thanks. Yes. Thank you. Uh, and Matthew and everyone else, don't forget to look us up on TikTok and Instagram. Um, really inspiring other courageous stories that people are sharing and the comments and the feedback is super helpful to me personally. So follow us on there and guard your hearts and your minds. No one else but you should have control of these. We'll see you next time. All right. Take care, everybody. Oh, oh.